Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. In 1973, at the age of 25, Elizabeth Becker, a budding South Asia scholar, found her academic career short-circuited. Her master's degree supervisor rejected her thesis because she wouldn't sleep with him. So she did what any red-blooded American would do. She filed a complaint and then moved on. In her case, she cashed in a fellowship check and bought a one-way ticket to Cambodia, the new focus of America's decade-long war in Indochina. There, she became a journalist covering the war as the Khmer Rouge slowly, surely, violently took over the country. Becker was part of a second wave of women journalists at the front, a tiny wave, but not as small as the first wave, which had gone into Vietnam just seven years earlier. That group was composed of three extraordinary women who went where virtually no women journalists had gone before, the front line. The reason why there had been no women there before? Women weren't allowed. These three broke the rules, and then they broke the mold of how to tell the story of war, and they also paid a high price. Now Elizabeth Becker has written their stories and the story of a war that raged more than half a century ago in an excellent book called You Don't Belong Here. I spoke with Elizabeth Becker down a line from my home in London to hers in Washington, D.C. I knew for years and years that I had to write this book. Coming late to the war as I did, I felt indebted to them, and I felt that the whole story of women coming to the Vietnam War was was never really told and was disappearing. As it turns out, choosing these three women, Catherine Lajoie, French photojournalist, Frances Fitzgerald, American long-form reporter, Kate Webb, combat reporter from Australia, the three who were willing to make the enormous sacrifices and the three who not only broke through the barrier of women coming in war, but who also changed how war was seen and written about and perceived. They changed the way war was covered, particularly the Vietnam War. I mean, how did that work? That was one of the fun and difficult exercises of this book. Going through their work as the war proceeds, comparing it to what the others were doing, i.e. the men, and seeing how theirs changed the perception. For the photographer, Catherine Lajoie, it meant she took different poses. She didn't see the patriotic poses you saw in the other photographs. And she decided the best photographs were when you could really see the eyes. That makes sense, right, when you're in a photo studio, but not when you're on a battlefield because you have to get so close. But that's what she did. So she made photographs, took photographs of the anguish, the despair, the boredom, the hope. All those came through a really broad range of uh, emotions, not only on the soldiers, but of course the the civilians, the citizens of of Vietnam who were hopelessly um, affected by the war. For Frankie Fitzgerald, Frances Fitzgerald, again, outsider, none of these women had anything on their resumes that would qualify them to cover a war. Women in those days weren't allowed to do things like that. They were in what were called the pink ghettos of the women's section. So they all paid their own way over. They all came without jobs. They all came out with a place without no place to live. And they 
had to make up not only what they were going to cover, but the how they were going to cover it. So Frances Fitzgerald had a lot of people who said they might be interested in her articles. So she just started writing what she thought was important. No editor was telling her what to do. She thought the most important story was um, what was really going on in Vietnam and not just in the U.S. Embassy or not just in the battlefield. So she wrote her very first piece for the Village Voice, attracted all these letters to the editor saying, my goodness, I haven't read anything like this. I feel like I'm getting the truth. And that, as an outsider, she just continued it along that way. Um, Kate Webb, the Australian, also no, no real experience as a reporter. She, she had been what we now would call, what we then would have called a copy boy. She took her Remington portable and flew to Saigon, and she had trouble just getting press credentials. Even though she was an intellectual with an honors degree in philosophy, she turned out to be a brilliant uh, combat reporter. Again, because she saw a bigger story than just what was, you know, the good guys, six killed, the bad guys, 20 killed, who's got this hill and who's got that. So she wrote stories describing how the soldiers were fighting, what they were fighting for, what they didn't know they were fighting for, how, all kinds of questions. As far as I can tell, she's the first woman to truly cover um, U.S. combat in our history. I sort of know about Frances Fitzgerald because, like most people my age in college at the time, I read Fire in the Lake when it came out. Um, I knew of Kate Webb because in the Anglophone world, she's still known among people who do war reporting. Um, but Katrina Raw was unknown to me and also seemed to me to be the most extraordinary person. And you, you, we were talking earlier about the different view, and part of that, and you write about it very well, is she was so tiny that she actually saw the world differently because she was short. She was looking up, and she had one other skill. She had done something like 85 parachute jumps as a hobby before she got to Vietnam. And it's interesting because you've just pointed out one of the reasons that I think the women were forgotten. Catherine Lois has been remembered in Francophone world, right? But not in the Anglophone world. And, um, and a lot of Europe doesn't consider this war their war, it's the American war. So the, every I have women from three different continents whose countries were at various times involved in the war, but they are remembered in, in specific little niches. So um, yes, Katrine Lois was barely five feet tall and she had trouble keeping on 90 pounds. And it wasn't just her short size, it's how she used it. She was an, almost like an acrobat. Long arms, slender, so she would roll around in the mud. She would crawl through the grass, things that no, that other photographers had not been seen doing. And she took those unusual angles. And she didn't mind a little blur. She, um, she was, uh, I think, experimental is the best, I don't like to say first this, first that, but she was definitely experimental. And when she took uh, her, one of her most famous series of a medic trying to revive a soldier during a battle, a battle of the hills, she used that smallness to get very close 
and watch as the medic's face changed from desperate hope to anguish. She made sure that she used only one roll of film so that he would not be disturbed. He never knew she was there. She ran back down to find a military spokesman, gave him the tube of film with instructions for the head of photography for Associated Press. And that was Horace Foss, the great photographer. Uh, he saw those photographs and he said he hadn't seen anything like that since World War II. He was blown away. I begin the book with her jump with the 173rd Airborne in what was the first and last airborne assault of the Vietnam War. And she was the only um, photographer, male or female, who was even vaguely qualified to do that. So she was the only one that the Americans let in on the plane. So here's this teeny woman uh, with a huge parachute on her, three cameras around her neck. She jumps out and what was the likelihood of one of the cameras flipping in her face? Quite high. She managed to control it. And while she is jumping with the, with the 173rd Airborne, these big guys, big boots, big helmets, she's taking their photograph. They're quite extraordinary. You've got, there are one or two in the book, and I, I just stared and was rendered uncharacteristically speechless because, it, because I understand jumping out of an airplane as something to do. But to do that in those conditions, and, you know, clearly, it was a useless tactic in Vietnam, airborne assaults. I mean, you had to get close to the tree line. You didn't know what you were, which is why they used helicopters. You didn't know what you were jumping into from a great height. So they they did it once. She memorialized it, and, and that was it. The The other thing that has me, had me so interested was you mentioned that, you know, Francis Fitzgerald, Frankie Fitzgerald is American, uh, Kate Webb is Australian, Catherine Leroy is French, but that's not the only thing. They're so, they come from such very, very different backgrounds, and, and yet all of an age and all motivated to get to this war. What's your take on, on why three women, three countries, three completely different socioeconomic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, suddenly decide, I want in on this story? Well, there's the, uh, the push-pull factor. There wasn't anything holding them in their own countries. They were all very, um, very bright, sharp women. They were not going to sit around and accept whatever roles were waiting for them. Just remember, Michael, this is the days when you open up the newspaper and there's a column for women women's jobs and a column for men's, and you wouldn't want to be in the women's column. They were all rebels in their own way. The pull of Vietnam for all three was this was important. They had been denied doing something important. And when you're young, that's what you want. You want purpose. And there was this big war, the biggest story in the world. And they knew the news outlets were hungry for news. All you had to do was look at what was in the papers. Catherine was from a petite bourgeois French family, strict Catholic. Dad was an engineer in a factory. Frankie Fitzgerald was blue blood, patrician beyond belief. So she grew up with chauffeurs and servants and um, horses in the stables. 
she did not want to be in that gilded trap. And she said Vietnam changed her life. She would have not known the real world, the real center of issues. She hadn't even known what middle class life was like, much less the poverty and the war. Of all of them, I think she was most profoundly immediately affected by Vietnam. And now Kate came from an intellectual family of, of bishops and professors, but she had a tragic uh, incident in her young adolescence, 15 years old, and she watched her friend commit suicide. And she, this is in Australia, Melbourne, and she had provided the rifle the hunting rifle to her friend. So she was initially charged with accessory to homicide. She got out of it, but you can imagine the trauma. We had barely recovered. She was in college, and then her parents were killed in an automobile accident. So in a sense, she was unsettled, obviously, and she was fleeing that darkness, I would say, without putting words in her mouth. But there was no question. I, I quote her as saying she was familiar with with death before she got to Vietnam, and that's what she was talking to. And so in Vietnam, of all the three, she's the one who tried to be most like the guys, did not push back as much at um, all of the um, obstacles that her colleagues and the military put up against her. Well, it's interesting. You bring up guys, and uh, Katrina Wall wrote home to her mother, I think, there are 20,000 guys in town, but virtually no European women. It's not as much fun as you might think. And I mean, that's an element of the war. And, and you write about it periodically throughout the book, that war, wars heighten our senses. Being in the middle of that kind of situation just heightens all senses and human drives. And that includes sex. And how did how were they able to negotiate being in a ratio of one to twenty thousand? Surely the pressure must have been extraordinary. Frankie had the most classic solution, which was to have <clears throat> almost as soon as she got there, um, she and War Just became a couple. War Just was the Washington Post correspondent, um, sophisticated, good writer tour and you know upper middle class enough that he was part of she could recognize him as part of her social milieu so he was like a shield and it didn't mean that when he wasn't around other men didn't try to put the make on her but um she had a protection katrine um no and she became aggressively furious at the behavior of the men you know, she she certainly slept with whoever she wanted to, but she did not want to be forced into a position. And she wrote to her mother, women are put in two categories, either they're a wife or they're a whore. And that's what she felt like was going on with her. Now, she was so adamant about being herself and independent, and she was doing so well that the men uh, went behind her back and tried to take away her press credentials. And and Kate Webb had had a again had a very different way of dealing with these things. First of all, um, she and Kate both had PTSD right almost from the beginning. They were way they were in the battlefield far too much. They had no sense of how to take care of themselves, and um, and they both went to uh, Kate in particular drank too much. So Kate would hang out with the guys. Um, she cut her hair very short from the beginning. More fatigues a lot. Um, didn't want to stand out for um, 
too much femininity. Uh, she did not want to attract that kind of attention. So she'd go and have a couple of beers and then leave and go back to her house. And she had a couple of women Vietnamese friends who she talked to, and then she'd drink at home, and that would be it. And if women's liberation came up, she would be just as bad as the men about saying, oh, we don't need women's liberation. There's no barriers to women. It's just they're not good enough. And the people who like women's lib want an extra extra help that that you know men don't get and besides they're probably ugly so that's the route kate webb and she suffered for it silently the question about ptsd though is interesting because you if you think about cambodia you're writing this book over the last five years or so you write sparingly but vividly about what you saw in that country just before the khmer rouge took over and I wondered in the years, because nobody knew about PTSD then anyway. I'm not even sure that, I don't even think the term was coined by army medics until after the Vietnam War was over. And I, I'm just wondering if in writing, one, it, it triggered you in, in ways that you think, hmm, this is odd, I have an odd feeling, or that you felt in writing about some of the things I saw, you know, this is actually helping me deal with memories that, you know, perhaps I keep I keep in the very side of my skull and hope to keep there forever. Oh, it's definitely the latter. Um, I found, I've, I've written about my experience in Cambodia in a previous book uh, when the war was over. And, and I, in that instance and in this instance, I found it was very good to put it on paper, to feel it again to deal with it and to make sense of it. I mean, you're getting right to why I wrote this book. When you're going through all of this, you don't know what you're part of history. I had no idea. I mean, I put, I hadn't a clue. And um, so there was, you know, emotionally, yes. But unlike the others, as soon as I got back to the United States after covering the war, I started going to a therapist and I went, <laughs> I made the guy rich. Um, but so I knew that I had to, to work this, through this. So that's, that's, that puts me in a different place as the others. But also, I think that's why we're writers, you know, that's how we deal with the world. And um, definitely, putting this together and putting the women's role in the war uh, was the satisfaction that I was looking for. This is what, you know, my goal was to say, okay, before we're all gone, you know, because Frankie's alive at 81, and I'm pushing 74, I wanted this story told. So that was, that. that's the kind of satisfaction you get. Now, it's time for the big reveal in this podcast. What? You were my boss at NPR for a couple of years. And <laughs> yep. it was a very, probably the happiest time in my career, Elizabeth. But what I, what, I, what I want to say is that it was only about, I don't know, not quite 20 years after the Vietnam War was over, and these women had broken every single barrier to get out and cover the war. But by the time I started filing for the foreign desk, who, was, who were the stars? Deborah Amos, Sylvia Pajoli, Anne Garrels. And today, if you look at the, if listeners regularly read the newspapers and look at the bylines from the Middle East, which is the area that interests me most, virtually the entire press corps in Iraq and Syria at this moment, at for the big media, 
are women. I mean, this is an extraordinary sea change. Once the gates were open, and I just have to, to go over what those gates were, since at least World War II, the United States had forbidden women to be on the battlefield. So they had to work around that. And in a sense, they were the ones, by working around it, getting compromises, the United States got rid of their um, that ban. To, um, they showed very publicly that all the, the biases against women, that they couldn't do X, Y, and Z, they showed, they demonstrated that they were wrong. So suddenly, for the first time, you had women able to go to war. Now, if we put this in the context, all young men had wanted to go to war before. Young men wanted to prove their um, their chops by being great war correspondents. So suddenly women could do that too. So I'm not totally surprised that they say, okay, I want to do it too. They got there. But they, they got there is, is the point that if there is a particular view of war that you, you identify with, maybe even beginning with Catherine Leroy and how she, the things that she noticed, but also Kate Webb and Frankie Fitzgerald, that this view is now essentially it's the way we learn about war. It isn't, it isn't going to the daily briefing and hearing that we lost three and they lost 30. No, I mean, it's, it's profound. And um, I wanted to, to, to detail that, to show where that came from. That's one of the reasons Fire in the Lake, the book you read in college, won more awards than any book on Vietnam before or since the Pulitzer, the National Book award the Bancroft History Prize because Frankie that book epitomizes what I'm talking about it's the war from the view of Vietnam the Vietnamese culture and the Vietnamese history uh, what was going on in the landscape how the country was being destroyed here there and everywhere as well as the Americans and as all the reviews said my god this is the book we've been waiting for and you'll see that in Kate's work as well and I I think the the way to epitomize that is that there's the Kate Webb Prize given every year, and it's to the Asian journalist who shows the most courage covering difficult stories, because that's what Kate did. She really encouraged her local Asian reporters to work with her, and when she wrote, she gave the same sense of agency and dignity to the Asians who were part of the stories, not just the Americans. Do you think that this current generation of reporters are aware of the stories that you're telling in this book? Did they know? Are you writing for a general audience, or did you want to tell the younger people about them as well? Because they don't know. All of the above. As I was writing it, I was visiting a friend at The New Yorker, and there is a woman. The wo- a woman is the head of photography, and I said, so who's your favorite woman um, photographer during the Vietnam War. And she said, oh, there none were there. And I said, you've never heard of Catherine Luan, no. And so I, I did my own completely anecdotal, and I knew it. I mean, everybody knew who Martha Gellhorn was in World War II, and they knew she snuck onto um, the beach in Normandy, but they didn't know why she had to sneak on. And then they know that women were covering the Gulf War, Desert Storm, and they don't know the women in between who made all that possible. So yeah, it's, it's for women, it's for you guys, you men, you should know it well, and, but the general public. And, I, and it was a very good way to give 
the Vietnam War history through their eyes and their and their work, because I think that gave a broad view. And I hope if you want to read a book about Vietnam, pick up You Don't Belong Here, because that'll tell you, I think, a good history of the war. And just it happens. It's told through the views and work of women. Just to close, it's interesting. It's a new book about Vietnam. It's not just about the women, and I think that's what makes it a success. If I, if I can say that to your, to your face at the end of a of the internet. Look, it is a book about Indochina wars, and along with these three women, these are wars that it seems to me have been forgotten. It's not totally forgotten, no, because it's 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 such a it's still such a divisive war. Vietnam means so many things, different things to different people, but it's not like the Korean War, which is truly forgotten, I think. Um, and people would be hard pressed to know the difference between Desert Storm and the Iraq War. But Vietnam does mean something, but I think people don't know what it means, and that's why I wrote this book. I'd like to give some real meaning to it. Elizabeth, thank you very, very, very much for this. Oh, Michael, thank you. As always, a treat to talk to you. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks to Elizabeth Becker for making time for me. The book is doing incredibly well because it's an incredibly good book. Its title, again, is You Don't Belong Here. And if you're interested in these things, you can go online and find some of the photos of Catherine Leroy, spelled L-E-R-O-Y. They are just extraordinary, particularly the series of the young medic trying to treat a dead comrade on the field of battle in Vietnam. And what else can I say? If you like what you listen to, then please, please make a donation to keep the FRDH podcast coming. Thanks.